Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Help me welcome George Romero. I don't think we, we really broke ground that way. I mean, I don't think we paved the road for other filmmakers. I think there were, coincidentally, a lot of filmmakers during that period, that five or seven year period, that were making films that were inspired by, you know, what was going on in the world, by a little bit of that anger. And I think we all took different approaches. I don't think any of us were, you know... <clears throat> I think John Carpenter is probably more of a granddaddy to other films that came after than, than I ever was. Um, you know, I think we just all, we were all interested in, in using the genre to uh, express ourselves, not just to, you know, tell a little scary story. And, um, you know, certainly Toby and or Wes's early stuff. There were a lot of people that came out around the same time. I don't, I don't know that there was, that any of us influenced any of the others. Do you see any of the uh, younger horror filmmakers using the genre in, 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 in the way you, you guys use it at the time, which was, uh, you know, really innovative and very revolutionary? I haven't, I haven't seen much uh, lately that, um, that you know, of course, I don't, I don't get to see everything, but no, I haven't, I haven't seen it being used that way. It seems that these days it's either, you know, eye candy or a lot of special effects. And, um, I don't know, it seems maybe since 9-11, producers have gone back to uh, more gothic stuff, or, you know, it's, it's, not, it's a little less human-on-human, human, you know, it's not Scream anymore, it's more things like the signs and the others. And, uh, I think they're trying to find another way to scare people, the ring. Um, but I, none of that stuff, see, none of it seems to have a, any sort of real underbelly of you know, social criticism or satire that way. And most of the satire is sort of self-referential to the genre, which I'm, I don't like too much. How, how would you describe the way that Underbelly, that social criticism you just made, evolved in the Dead trilogy, first with Dawn of the Dead, which they will see tomorrow, and then, then Day of the Dead? Well, I think it got more and more self-conscious with each film. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty hard to go back to the innocence. You know, the first film, we were able to sort of talk about it, and, we, you know, we were living in that farmhouse and, you know, sitting around going, hey, well, that's sort of... <laughs> and, you know, basically, the film was innocent. We were able to sort of forget that and go make the movie. And with the, with the second film, you know, people say with Dawn of the Dead, there's this thing hidden underneath about consumerism. Hidden? Give me a break. <laughs> you know, it's like a pie in the face. <laughs> so, uh, in that sense, it, it, the, the, whatever social criticism there was, was more conscious, and, and in many cases, I think, even more self-conscious. Uh, you know, we were worried about it more. You, you know, you, you don't write a line without thinking, what am I saying here exactly, you know? So that's what I mean by being self-conscious. Day the same way. I mean, I was I had this conceit for a while that that we were doing them in 
we did them in different decades, uh, the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. And I thought that I, I was trying to, you know, make the, the outward personalities of the film uh, reflect those decades. And also the, the sort of mindset. You know, Dawn of the Dead is, uh, you know, disco party, <laughs> comic book. And um, the, in, in the 80s when, you know, the, the, the rich were living upstairs and everybody was down in the cellar someplace. And, uh, so I think it, it reflects that. You know, I don't, I don't think of them as uh, sequels per se. They're just, they're films that use a similar theme and, and that, that reflect uh, the times uh, in which they were made. And, you know, try to have a, a good time with uh, the same, same monsters, you know, my, my old buds. Now, you have a, f a fourth dead film, which I'm sure everybody wants to hear about. What would reflect about our times? Mm -hmm. Well, the funny thing is I had, I had finished the script before 9 -1 And then I, yeah. I said, oops, I don't think this is exactly right. And I, I don't know yet whether this is going to happen or not. Everybody keeps saying, is there, you know, are you doing Twilight of the Dead? What, you, know, um, <laughs> you know, there basically is no deal on it yet. But I have been working on a script. And I have been trying to change it. Uh, since 9-11, because I didn't think it was quite pertinent. It was, it was completely about ignoring the problem. You know, it seemed like before 9-11, that's what we were doing. And my idea was that the dead would be homeless, you know, like the homeless. And people got used to them, you know, got used to stepping over them on the way to dinner. That was going to be the idea, basically, ignoring them and trying to live around them. And then after 9-1-1, I, you know, I think now we're sort of coming back to ignoring the problem again, but in a different way, sort of like living in an earthquake zone. Uh, later on, George would be introducing Tales of Hoffman, which is one of his favorite films. And uh, he's known for being a horror filmmaker, and yet the films he, he always mentions as the films that are, were really important for his, for his life are not necessarily horror. One is Tales. Another one is the thing from another world, and the other one is the quiet man. And I want to ask George, what is it about these three films that was so important for him in his youth when he was growing up in New York? Well, they were uh, among the first films I was allowed to go see alone with my own 50 cents. And, um, you know, I, I was just always in love with movies. And those three particularly just had an effect on me. I love Ford. I mean, the quiet man turned me on to Ford. I was allowed to go see The Quiet Man. I grew up in a Catholic family, and you know everybody was with The Quiet Man. You know, they said a Hail Mary in that movie. You know, um, and it, I, it turned me on to Ford that film, and turned me on to the Duke as well. So I had very mixed tastes. I just liked movies, and I thought that was just a particularly terrific movie. The thing was probably, I, I think at the time, that, that was the scariest thing that I'd ever seen. Scariest thing I'd ever seen. Um, but also, at, at the same time, just right around the time that the thing came out, I, at the RKO Castle Hill and all neighborhood theaters around, I was able to go see the big universal monsters of film, film land, big screen. Uh, I don't know how many people here have ever seen those movies, big screen. Uh, they're gorgeous. So that turned me on too, you know, that sort of classical, the more classical style. But the thing I thought was really scary. And it was the first one that scared me, sitting there in my seat. Um, and, you know, got to me. And Tales of Hoffman was, um, is an opera 
it's just a beautiful, Michael Powell, that film turned me on to Michael Powell. I had an aunt and uncle who took me to see Tales of Hoffman when it first played in theaters uh, in Manhattan. It's a fantasy film, and so I, I was able, you know, I related to it on that level, but I, I, I also, it was, it turned me on to classical, turned me on to opera. I was just so impressed with, with that film. Michael Powell, he was working with, you know, not very much money, and um, certainly no visual effects uh, capability or budget, and um, was able to do things just with very simple in-camera uh, um, tricks that were transparent. You know, you could see, oh, how, that's how they did that. They just double printed that, or they played it in, in reverse motion. And I think uh, that being able to see through those tricks gave me a little bit of confidence uh, in an ability to, you know, go out and, and try to really understand the medium. In other words, it wasn't it wasn't this blow away thing that was unachievable. And so I loved it for that. But I also just I loved I just loved the, the design of that film and his use of color and the characters. And of course, it was a fantasy. I mean. Robert Heltman is the best Dracula that ever was, I think. Yeah. So I hope those of you who've never seen it get a real treat to see it big. Um, George, uh, you grew up in New York and you started making films here. Um, uh, call them that. <laughs> well, you started when you were really little with an 8mm camera and then a 16, and then you went to Pittsburgh. Can you tell us what brought you to Pittsburgh and what made you really decide to make films? Well, I always loved film, and I, but I always thought you had to be sort of born royalty to get involved in it. And uh, at, at the time, there were no schools that had any hardware. Um, my dad was a commercial artist, and so I went to Pittsburgh to study painting and design at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Tech then. And um, they had a theater department, so after three years of trying to paint, <laughs> Um, I transferred over to the theater department and got another little sort of, you know, whiff of the grease paint or whatever you call it. A bunch of us got together and made a little film, which never went anywhere. It was a little, we never put a track on it, but it, we actually finished the two-hour flick and um, was uh, an anthology, five stories with a wraparound called Expostulations. I think there may be a couple of clips from it on the other, one of the reels that they're going to show. And in looking around for people who might be able to put a soundtrack on that, we met some musicians and some audio guys in Pittsburgh, and we all started to hang out. At the time, cities the size of Pittsburgh had film laboratories because there was no such thing as tape. News was on film. And uh, one of the first jobs, I wasn't even really a job. You know, they paid me, they gave me a cup of coffee and a few nickels here and there, but I was bicycling. They'd shoot the news film, bring it in, and these guys, you know, smoking cigarettes over the splicing glue, would cut together these news stories, all single system. I had to buy, I'd take the, you know, bicycle and run the stuff around. I say bicycling, it wasn't literally because the stations were all right there in town at the time. And um, that was my, that's how I learned from these guys, you know, these guys down in the cellar of this place that were just, you know, living on the fumes of the glue. But that's where I really I learned how to use the pencil, how to synchronize sound with picture and do all that. So uh, then we kept pushing at it, and we finally uh, you know, bought some bigger equipment, 16, all 16. But the labs, in the, the labs there did 16, 35. And 
And they were full service labs with sound stages, mixing stages, everything. We were able to make Night of the Living Dead because when we started to make commercials, that we called ourselves a commercial production company. And at the time, commercials were all live, you know, guys between innings of the ball game drinking, actually drinking beer when that was allowed. And um, we were the first company to do commercials on film. Well, we had a, a good success for two or three years and wound up and then buying more equipment, bought some 35, and then we went broke. <laughs> uh, but we were able to make Night of the Living Dead with, with them and, you know, keep going. Made three or four more films before I met my partner here, Richard Rubenstein. And he made me get serious. And uh, we did some television for a while. And then before we went back to doing another feature, and then was with Richard that I did Martin and um, all the things after that up through uh, day. You make a very effective use of claustrophobia in uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. You kind of not uh, use it the same way in, uh, in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, in Day, did you want to go back to recuperate that feeling? You know, it, we, I didn't think too much directly about that. It was more about the, the themes. Um, you know, the mall is a mall. And, uh, <clears throat> just a, a different environment. And, that, you know, that was so overwhelming that uh, I wasn't, I wasn't really focused or concentrated at all about, well, this is going to be less claustrophobic and, and the next one will be claustrophobic again. And then that one, I was just more uh, concerned with the idea of, of, you know, being forced to live underground in order to escape the craziness. Question is, do you find that people tend to overanalyze your film and find things in them that you really, you know, weren't aware of putting in it? I think there's no question about that. <laughs> Um, absolutely. I mean, as I said, the, the, you know, most of the, the message stuff, particularly in the second two, or uh, to me, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's right in your face. And the other stuff that people read into it, I, you know, I, sometimes it's, it's astonishing to me. I mean, I've read treatises about all the little details, and if it's there, it's completely subconscious. Sometimes that, that happens. I mean, you make choices for one reason or another, whether whether it's uh, you know choosing an angle or uh, everything, casting uh, the whole the whole thing, you, you know you make choices based on something, but it's usually instinctive and usually pretty much on the fly. Uh, as long as you have your sort of your idea, your the core of your idea locked in your head, you just have to trust yourself to make all of the other little decisions that go along with it. Uh, the question was pertinent to uh, George's technique from, you know, the shooting and editing and its craft. Uh, and he asked about digital, whether I'm into digital or the new technologies yeah. and all that. And I'm not, um, you know, I'm not attracted to it just for the sake of what it is. Uh, in Bruiser, we used probably, well, Dark Half, I guess, we used uh, a good bit of CG stuff, but uh, that was before, uh, you know, great programs were developed and it doesn't look very good. It's a couple of the guys that were working on it were not too wonderful. Um, in Bruiser, we used it, I used it almost incidentally, uh, you know, to make bats fly through a scene or to do things that just uh, not obviously affect scenes. <clears throat> not obviously scenes that, that require special effects, but just for enhancement, you know, make the sky look better or... <laughs> Um, things like that, and and uh, little storytelling points. There, there's a scene in Bruiser that, where, uh, 
there's a, a boy, it's actually my son, <laughs> pointing up a, 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 a trident fork to pick out victims at this party. And it just never read. So we went in and put a beam of light on it. And I, I have to say, I was amazed. When you see that footage, you, you won't believe that it, that it wasn't really a light. And these guys were great. I love being able to do things like that. Um, I'm not that interested in doing a big effects picture. You know, I don't, I don't wake up in the morning and say, God, I, yeah, I can make the Loch Ness Monster now that we can do it well, you know. Um. <laughs> do you have a favorite modern-day horror movie? Modern day meaning how recent? <laughs> Last five years, I don't know. Boy, favorite? I'm not. I'm not too blown away. I like, you know, I like John's stuff. Um, uh, uh, you know, I just haven't been really excited. But I like Signs actually. I know you didn't, but um, I I liked it. I thought I thought he sort of went back to basics with it, and you know, it was things that go bump in the night. I actually saw some similarities to night. Take, you know, there's this thing, the aliens have invaded the world and we're looking at it from a farmhouse. I like, I like that. I like Candyman. I like, I love They Live. Uh, I don't know if that's going back too far. Um, but every once in a while, you know, something comes along and you go, yo, but not too often. It's, it's a two-part two question. Um, one is, pertains to uh, Day of the Dead. George initially wrote the script for a much bigger uh, budgeted film, and then he was forced to cut it almost in half. So he's asking, what would the film would have been like in case you had you know, the original budget? And the second part of the question is, uh, relates to a Night of the Living Dead, and he's, he's, he's saying that at the end of the film, he saw a, a, the equivalent of a lynching. It reminded me very much of a lynching, and he uh, is asking George if that was intended or is something that he projected on the film. I, well, the second question first. Uh, I I do think that you know I was influenced a little bit by my working at the at those labs and the news stations, but it was also it was 1968. You know, it was a very angry time, and so those attitudes I'm sure crept in that whole thing of the guys coming across the field, and then we went to those grainy sort of you know almost press like photographs. So we couldn't figure out how to make them actually litho, so we just put this you know grain over them, um, and. Um, so definitely that was the idea. I mean, this guy gets gunned down by a posse. You know, zombies are just doing what comes natural. <laughs> I had written um, a bigger script. It just would have cost more money. I mean, the attitude of the basic themes in it were the same. But we showed more. There was another society. There was, a, there was a, a, you know, an upper class sort of living up top. And there were corral, bigger corrals uh, for the zombies. And it was just a bigger film with boat action and, you know, a lot more action scenes. Made. But thematically, it stayed the same. But uh, at the time, um, UATC, the, the people that financed it, um, uh, United Film, uh, you know, said to Richard, my partner, you know, hey, well, it, it budgeted out at around seven mil, I think. And they say, okay, well, we can, we'll, we'll do this for seven mil, but you got to deliver it as an R rating. And if, you, if you're willing to work with three million, we will put it out unrated. So we decided to rewrite and spend, you know, just shave it down. That's what happened. Uh, just to stay on this subject really quickly, Georgia had a, a version of Marty, which was actually two hours and 45 minutes long, and it's a version he really liked. What was that like? Give us a, a brief idea. 
oh, what was that version of Martin like? Again, it was longer. It had it had much more of narration. It had much more. It was just much more of an exploration. If anyone has ever seen the book, the the novelization of Martin, it was much more like like that. Uh, again, thematically, very much the same. Um, and uh, but um, you know, we cut it, tried to cut it down to size. I, I just wish there was one existing 16 millimeter black and white print of that that I wish I still had. But I, you know, I got together actually with uh, Ben Barinholtz, who was going to distribute that film. And you know, we sat in the cutting room, and he gave me his opinions about it, and we worked on it together. And, you know, he's got a pretty good eye for where it's fat, and uh, you know, I cut it, cut it down to something that you know, I I always like it longer. You know, I I never think that a, a film is long enough. So, how, how do you feel about the the, the vast influence that uh, Dawn of the Dead had on the Italian horrors of the '70s films by Dario Argento or Lucio Filci? Do you like those films? Well, Dario was around. I mean, Dario was the first money uh, in to produce Dawn of the Dead, so he was—he's been—he was around long before that. Uh, there were some films that really seemed to use the the idea of you know the same kind of zombies and just use that that phenomenon, uh, you know, for for whatever the filmmaker's own reasons were. And I like I liked some a couple of the Fulci films, and you know, I don't I don't pay a lot of attention to it. I have to say, I mean, I'm not. Not a student of the genre that way. My zombies are, you know, guys that, you know, they're Steeler fans, man. <laughs> well, he's asking about the different versions that uh, uh, Night of Living Dead had, you know, 1999 version, and, you know, the remake and then the special edition, and why there are these different versions. And George can illustrate that complicated <laughs> problem. Well, yeah, the, the remake was. Uh, Basically, a copyright issue. I mean, we we lost the copyright on on the original Night of the Living Dead. Um, we had when when we first finished the film, we printed it, made an answer print in Pittsburgh at one of those labs, threw it in the car, and brought it to New York to look for somebody to show it. And our title was Night of the Flesh Eaters. And Walt, when Walter Reed finally picked up the film, they changed it, and they, Night of the Living Dead was their title. And uh, we naively had our copyright notice on that, on literally the title card, the overprint. That was the title of the film. And when they changed the title, they never noticed that, the, that they also took the copyright off the film. That was our fault. We should have put it, you know, down where it belonged. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, after three or four years, people realized that there was no copyright on that film. And we fought it for years in, in, you know, in Washington, and we were never able to get the copyright back on it. That's why there were so much, so many, uh, you know, unauthorized copies. Everybody that realized that it was, you know, basically public domain was making copies of it. So the company, Image Ten, the the original group of people that made the the original made the first film, uh, said, "We got to try to protect ourselves. Let's do a remake." And that's, that really was the reason for the remake. And uh, so I went along with it and wrote it, and I think Tom did a good job directing it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it wasn't sort of, it wasn't anybody's desire to go remake the movie. And as far as the 30th anniversary edition, I didn't have anything to do with that. And I just thought that was a bad exercise. There has been talk about remaking Dawn of the Dead, and uh, have you been contacted about directing, and uh, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, no, I wasn't contacted, but it's it's Richard. It's my my partner at the time, and uh, 
he's you know he's got the right to do it and you know I wish him a lot of luck I think they're gonna take a different approach with it from what I've heard and I don't know anything about what's going on with it he was asking if there is a widescreen version of Night of the Living Dead that it was or if it was actually intended for the format you saw it was one thirty-three. Video companies and DVD companies, they keep looking for ways to make it different and new, and so you guys will all buy another copy. Uh, and, you know, I've seen, I can't tell you how many director's cuts I've seen of my stuff, that, you know, when I never did a director's cut. And, <laughs> and, and there's never been, there, there have been a couple of legitimate things. Anchor Bay is pretty good about it. They, you know, they actually found footage and they actually found new material. A couple of those copies were legitimately, um, expanded. But half the time, you know, they'll say the widescreen version. Well, when it's not shot widescreen, you know, it's uh, doesn't make any sense, does it? It's like colorizing Night of the Living Dead, you know. The original Night of the Living Dead, that's all library music. I mean, it was literally the Capitol High Cube uh, film score library that we lifted. <laughs> you know, needle drops, you pay so much per needle drop. And uh, so you, that music can be heard on a million other movies if you listen carefully. <laughs> <clears throat> I never met the cats that played it, so I don't know how many there were. The question is, how did he get to cast uh, John Amplas in, the, uh, in Martin, as the lead character in Martin? Oh, there's oh, no, always vanilla. It was a script written by another friend of ours, you know, somebody in the group, and it was never finished. We were getting pages every once in a while, and... So we wound up, shoot, if anyone has ever seen, there's a, talking about a film called There's Always Vanilla, a.k.a. The Affair. I don't know how many other titles it had. but So we wound up shooting those narrative pieces with Ray in order to try to glue it, you know, make, sound, make a little sense out of the story. But I, I enjoyed, I, there, were, there were days that I really enjoyed shooting it. And, you know, it, it's too bad that, it, you know, it hasn't been seen more just for the sake of everybody that worked on it, you know. Casting John was, um, you know, I had written the script, and really the only actor that I had in mind was my wife, Christine. <laughs> I, saw, I saw John in a play in Pittsburgh, and uh, it, it was, he was just, he was magic in the play. He had to do a little bit of mime, a lot of movement, and he had to be, have that sort of, you know, shy, sullen, you know, just exactly what we needed. It was right there on a platter. John Amplis is also in the mime in Night Riders, and he just has this magical quality. When you're given a chance, you single out two other films that are your favorite. One is Martin, and one is Night Riders. Why? Why those two films are closer to your heart than others? So much of why you have a favorite piece of your own work, uh, ha I think there are, there are probably more than two, but two major components to it. One is is uh, how successful you think you were in translating your idea or what you originally had on the page and, and, and how successful you were in being able to do that. Forget whether the film is successful, whether it works, whether it plays to an audience. It's, it, it, you have this internal feeling about, well, this is what I set out to do, and that's pretty close. Um, having nothing to do. With, as I say, with whether it works for anybody else. And, and that, that affects you yourself. And the other part of it is the experience of making the film, which you cannot separate from the film itself. And so Martin and Knight Riders were both, I mean, man, we were just a family, you know, and we were, we were fighting the dragon. I mean, th those productions, they were difficult productions. And um, 
we just had a, you know, I can't say we had a wonderful time, but we had this com feeling of camaraderie and everybody working towards the same goal. And, uh, you know, I haven't experienced uh, that again until Bruiser. Um, and I, I, had, I have the same feeling about Bruiser. And so now Bruiser's, I've, have, have, have written right up there with the other ones as, you know, one of my faves. Because, I, again, I think it, uh, whether people get it or not doesn't matter. I think it's successful to what was on the page. And we had the best time. There wasn't a bad apple in the bunch. We just had a great time doing it. And I think those two things come in. That's what makes your favorite. He's asking about uh, George's collaboration with special effect artist uh, Tom Savini. How did they met and how do they work together when they do special effects? It's funny. Way before even Night of the Living Dead, when we first started to get serious about trying to make movies and started to, you know, buy equipment with our spare money, uh, we were going to make a little, um, uh, a little drama about two young kids, medieval. I mean, you know, we were trying to do Bergman, uh, Virgin Spring or something like that. And um, uh, we, so we needed two young teenagers. And what we did was we went around to high schools to look at high school plays. And Tom Savini was in one of those plays. And he was the, you know, the best male actor that, that we saw. So we, you know, we, I talked to him, we got together, we hung out a little bit, and of course plan, that film never got made, plans fell apart. Tom took off and was actually a combat photographer in Nam. And um, one day we were planning Martin. We were already planning it. We already had, Richard had already put the financing together and we were planning it. Tom walks off the elevator one day and he knew that we were doing this and he says, George, watch this. Slashed it open right there in front of all of us. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy he is, you know, he's just... So what, it, what it's like on the set, the second part of the question is Tom is very inventive. He's like this force. And, uh, he, you know, he loves it when there's a problem. You know, the, the, when John Harrison takes a screwdriver in the ear in Dawn, it was, it was to cover a continuity error because we had this guy... Uh, with a jacket. Scotty had a jacket around his waist and then he didn't, so we needed to have him lose the jacket. <laughs> so we said, well, well, we'll have a zombie grab him. But, well, then we have to kill the zombie. And it became one of the most memorable moments in the thing. So <laughs> uh, the editing in Dawn of the Dead is spectacular and editing seems one of the essential uh, um, ingredients of success of the first two films. Why didn't you edit uh, Day of the Dead? Uh... You know, I had already, I had started to work with Pat. I love editing. If I were starting over, I might decide to just be an editor. I mean, I, it's my favorite part of the process. Everybody goes home, <laughs> and you're left alone with all the stuff. And uh, you don't have, you know, there, there, there are no politics in that room, except when the producers come around and want to see a screening. But um, the I can't say that about my, my current partner and, and, and actually Richard. I mean, I've, I've had wonderful, it's been wonderful working with, with uh, both of these guys. And I'm talking about the suits, you know. My, my AD, Nikki, calls them the pine cones when they come around. You can't do it. The answer to why I don't do it anymore is you can't. You know, the pine cones want the film the day after it's shot. So you can't do it. But I had also gradually, over the course of several films, developed a really good relationship with pa Pasquale. And um, he's, you know, 
once you have that relationship, once you can shorthand, um, communicate in shorthand, it's a lot easier to work with somebody. I used to always be reluctant to sort of give it up, you know, what's this guy gonna do? Um, but then uh, on, on Creepshow, we had a bunch of different editors, and uh, so I was going around from room to room, you know, uh, Paul Hirsch cut the crate, you know, Oscar dude. So I, I, I lost some of my inhibitions and I also, you know, learned how to trust people. And working with Pat is like, you know, working with a brother, you know, I mean, it's uh, maybe easier, <laughs> probably. It, and it's about Night of the Living Dead and, and, and about how for being a very simple film, it didn't, it didn't overplay uh, most of the um, convention of the genre. It didn't, it didn't accentuate the, uh, the fact that they had, they had a black lead in a Gary Cooper role. It didn't, it didn't accentuate, there is no exploitation of women. It, 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 you really played it for Adrakat, the, the, uh, the blue color audience, is that intended? Yeah, I mean, we we didn't make it for a for a blue collar audience. I just said that I always thought that zombies were the blue collar monsters. They were the the you know the guys, the working joes of the monster class, or the monster mash. I guess we just were not you know we weren't thinking that way. We were thinking more thematically. We were thinking, well, this is a revolution, which is about a revolution. I mean, that's about as deep as we got into that the new society, literally devouring the old. Uh, and we got it. We spoke about the, you know, concepts of family and religion and uh, communications systems. All of those things falling apart. I mean, we talked a lot about that, but we weren't out to do an exploitation film in that in that sense. I mean, we didn't want we didn't want the zombies, you know, carrying off some <laughs> Judy, you know, with her with her trench coat torn open you know I mean that wasn't that wasn't in our mind that's not what we were doing we were trying to do a realistic story about what would happen if people got trapped in this situation in a farmhouse and if they could talk to each other they could get out of there if they would just make the right move they could get out of there if they just spoke you know there's a car that she has a car um, you know instead it's this you know lack of communication and anger and and one-upsmanship and uh, that gets between them and that, that for us was much more what the story was about where we tried to push the envelope was in the scares and in the obviously in the the banquet scene <laughs> uh, How was did uh, leaving in Pixar and staying in Pixar deciding to stay there has affected your work? I don't know if it's had any real effect. It's maybe kept out some static uh, a lot of my friends that have, you know, moved either to the coast, uh, well, mostly to the coast, um, west coast, <laughs> um, are, you know, you live and breathe the stuff. And I think there are a lot of influences, uh, subconscious, unconscious influences on you. Oh, this is, this is what the stock that everybody is using now. You know, there's this new kind of smoke, man, that really makes it look pretty. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I, there's a lot of that that you avoid by being away from it, you know. And I haven't needed to be. I mean, my partner's here in New York, Peter, and you know, my our agents in L.A. And you know, I don't need to be there. So uh, I just soon stay away. Plus, we have my wife and I have, uh, you know, a couple of kids, that, and Pittsburgh's a much better place to for them. And so I just stayed around. I also I fell in love with. It. I mean, I I grew up in New York, and I fled. You know, I never knew about Manhattan. I was a Bronx kid. This was enemy territory. Not here, not here, but over there. That was enemy territory. 
And uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I fled before I even knew what New York was about. And I got to Pittsburgh, and I saw some sky and some, you know. Uh, when I grew up, you'd hear an airplane for five minutes and see it for about a second, and then you'd hear it going away for five minutes. Um, and Pittsburgh, I just fell in love with it, and I still love it. It's a great city. It's really a great city. Not many people realize, but it's a wonderful place. And it's a very real place. It's very friendly, and there's still a lot of, you know, that old industrial, you know, let's get this job done, man. In 1968, how did you play to audiences the scene in Night of the Living Dead where they take all the corpses out of the pickup truck? It must have been really new to the audiences then. Yeah, they pretty much went, ew! I mean, you know, it wasn't, I don't think anybody thought of it as part of the, the, the message or anything. It was a gross out, and it was, you know, partly meant to be. And then again, what I was talking about the other films, how they, how they got a little more self-conscious, I, 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 I I have this justification in my mind for why you why those sequences belong, uh, because it's a wake up call. You know, the film's a kind of a romp, comic book, whatever whatever the personality of the individual piece is, and then all of a sudden you get one of these scenes, and it's a it's a it's cold water in the face, and I really I dug that in Mash, for example, where you're howling, and then all of a sudden you go into that operating room and. There's blood squirting all over the place, and it's just like, holy Jesus. And so that's really what I was trying to do with those scenes. I don't think anyone saw them that way when it first came out. It's also very, you know, it's much easier to take in black and white. <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, actually, in Dawn, I think that the red is so red, and it looks kind of fake. Yeah, you've said one, that your real blood for you is blood in black and white. Yeah. Well, I grew up with blood being in black and white, you know. Uh, wherever you saw it on the news or, you know, Brando and on the waterfront when they beat him up, you know, that's real blood, man. <laughs> Ours was chocolate syrup, however. What happened? You were supposed to write the Resident Evil movie. Um, <laughs> they didn't like what I did, basically. I mean, Peter and I worked on it intensely for, uh, well, gosh, I don't know, 10 months, something like that. And it was one of those typical situations where you work with an executive who doesn't have yes power. And he's loving everything and saying, oh, this is great, man. We're going we're to push this through, and this is great. There's a couple of boys upstairs are going to love this. And then finally, you show it to the boss, and he says, what's this? You know, this isn't what I wanted. I mean, it's, I can't tell you how many times that's happened. I mean, Peter and I had a, had a housekeeping deal at New Line for two years uh, where they just basically, you know, paid us big bucks, gave us an office, and they kept saying, what do you, wanna, what do you want us to buy for you? But we, we actually asked them to buy a few properties for us, and they would buy them. The execs would buy them. And they'd actually commission scripts to be written on them. And then you'd wind up in the Bob Shea's office, and he would say, who bought this? I mean, there's no communication. And sometimes, you know, deals fall apart just simply because of that kind of stupidity. This was right, right after Dark Half, right? Right after Dark Half, yeah. <laughs> would you say how did musical, the beautiful music box find its way into Night of the Living Dead? It was at the house. <laughs> Happy accident, you know. There are so many of those. I mean, that happens a lot, uh, you know. Is the house still there? No. The only reason we got to use it was because they were going to tear it down. So they let us, you know, mess it up. Well, I'd like to thank you, uh, George Romero. And thank you. Emma. Thank you all. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.